Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Melanie Kamet. Melanie is Clarence Dillon Professor of International Affairs at Harvard. She's a professor of government, essentially, at Harvard University. She's also the acting director of the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard, chair of the Harvard Academy, and she holds a secondary faculty appointment in global health and population at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Excitingly, Melanie is the author of a fascinating book called Compassionate Communalism, Welfare and Sectarianism in Lebanon. That was published by Cornell. It's a wonderful book, and I'm really looking forward to talking with her about it. So, Melanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for including me in this series. It's really exciting, Melanie. I think you're going to add, add some really interesting stuff that that really engages with some of the questions that, that other scholars have been interested in, but from a slightly different angle. So I, I'm really excited to hear what you've got to say. But Melanie, can you start by telling us what, what got you interested in, in the, these questions in, in sectarian politics and Middle East politics more broadly, please? Sure. Uh, Well, Middle East politics, I have to uh, credit to a professor at uh, Brown University when I was an undergraduate there, Um, Professor Joanne Hart. She was a professor of political science, and I took her Middle East politics class my sophomore year and got absolutely enraptured by what I was learning. She encouraged me to go to Cairo my junior year abroad. I spent the entire year there, and after that, I was completely hooked. So I've been working on the region now for decades, uh, surprisingly <laughs> to myself. <laughs> it's been decades. Um, and um, and so initially I had spent time obviously in Egypt that year. I spent a year in Jordan on a Fulbright fellowship several years later while I after I had finished a master's degree. And then my earlier work based on my doctoral dissertation was on North Africa, looking at issues of globalization and trade reform and the politics of business government relations. But then we had uh, the Iraq war in 2003, the U.S. invasion, and uh, I was very much opposed to the U.S. invasion and completely fascinated by and, um, you know, horrified by the aftermath of it. And one thing that really caught my eye when I was reading press coverage of the aftermath of the U.S. invasion and the immediate aftermath is that here you had a country that had a public welfare infrastructure. Now, to be sure, it had been really deteriorated because of war and sanctions and so forth. So there was by no means was it a robust public welfare infrastructure, but nonetheless, it was ostensibly a public welfare infrastructure. And then the state was dismantled by the occupation and lots and lots of new political parties popped up, most of which had some kind of identity-based affiliation, ethnic or religious. And what we started to see, and I saw this in buried inside of a New York Times article back in spring 2003, was that some of these new political parties that cropped up started to claim pieces of the public welfare infrastructure for their own. So I got fascinated by this question of what happens when a state collapses 
people have to make their make do and meet their basic needs. And then you have all kinds of uh, non-state actors claiming pieces of the former public welfare infrastructure. So initially, I wanted to go into Iraq and look at what happens when you have religious organizations controlling welfare institutions, who gets access, what does this mean for access, what does this mean for this sort of everyday experience of yeah. identity politics. And um, and then it became apparent very rapidly when I moved into the field work stage that it was hard to work in Iraq in 2006. So uh, I yeah, discovered I that similar dynamics had occurred in Lebanon. Yeah. Right. So that that explains the origins of that project, basically. Fantastic. Can we go back to Cairo just briefly? What what do you remember from that period? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was my first introduction to the Middle East, to the Arab world, so everything was brand new for me. Right. But uh, it was the period in which you had very serious crackdown by the state on Islamists, uh, particularly Islamists that were employing violence, but not exclusively. Uh, so I do remember various incidents around that cropping up and discussions around that. There was also um, this was in, you know, uh, 1990. Um, and so, um, so there, there were increasing tensions there, uh, between, uh, the Mubarak, uh, regime and some of these groups. And that was definitely a topic of, of conversation. I also remember being struck by the incredible inequality uh, in, in income and wealth, uh, which is, you know, not a terribly shocking observation, observation in the world that we're living in now, but already back in 1990, I was struck by it. And interestingly, I thought it was bad back then, but I've been visiting the region, including Egypt, but elsewhere in the region for years and years now, often every year I'll be in some country in the region, yeah. uh, usually multiple times, and it's only gotten worse and worse. So that was something that really struck me uh, even from back then, and that was at arguably at a moment when inequality was less stark than mm. it is now. Interesting. And and does that does that have a, a relationship or does that have an influence, I should say, on on this focus on welfare then? I think perhaps subconsciously and indirectly, it's something that I've always been interested in and questions of social justice. I basically spent the 1980s in high school going to rallies in Washington, D.C., protesting various things related right. to social justice. So this this uh, interest in these this broader set of questions has been longstanding, but um, but I think I really got excited about it because after doing my earlier work on business government relations, I realized that what really excited me was uh, was the issue of how people meet their basic needs, and I was very curious about this, and particularly under conditions of instability and state weakness and and so forth. Yeah, that's suddenly sort of important. I can see how that would be be really important in in these conditions of of precarious political organization across across the Middle East. Uh, what what do you understanding by basic needs then? Just just for our listeners, how do you how do you engage with that that concept or those concepts? Right. Obviously, this is a subjective concept. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking of it in terms of you know, at a bare minimum, the ability to gain access to basic health care and health needs, 
uh, schooling that's broadly available across income groups and uh, is of a decent quality, um, the ability to, you know, earn a living that enables one to, you know, support their family. Uh, ideally, also the opportunity for social advancement, which, as we know, in the Arab world has been declining since the late 1970s and 1980s with fiscal crises across many states in the Arab world. And of course, this is not unique to the Arab world. This is what we're seeing in my own country in the United States and many other contexts as well now. Um, but you know, certainly access to basic social services that allow people to maintain and ideally improve their standards of living. Uh, it's difficult in this region in particular because um, a lot of sort of the ability to meet one's basic needs is premised on public sector employment. Yeah. And uh, we know that public sector employment has hit its limits for quite some time and uh, states have been quietly sort of trying to shed public sector employees if they're not oil rich countries. And um, this has really hit families quite hard across the region, and you don't have a corresponding rise in opportunities in the formal private sector for employment. Obviously, we have enormous informal private sectors across the region that are really taking up the slack. Hmm. Interesting. Can you can you share a little bit of that, that sort of political and economic context then? Before we delve deeper into into the distribution of, of welfare and, and how that maps onto to some of the sectarian issues. Can you give us a bit of the context, that economic context in more detail, please? Yeah, this is something that I've uh, worked on with um, collaborators like Ishat Diwan in our 2015 book, A Political Economy of the Middle East, where we give sort of a broad overview of the political economy of the region. And, um, you know, in very crude terms divide the region into different types of political economies that on the one hand are characterized by high versus low resource endowments and on the other hand are characterized by high versus lower population endowments. So of course you have the relatively low citizen population countries of the Gulf that have high oil and gas endowments. Then you have on the other end of the spectrum, high population countries that don't have many resources, um, especially natural resources like Egypt or Tunisia, Morocco. Uh, and then in the middle, you have these what, what we call middle oil countries that are like Algeria, Iraq and others that have oil, but also have high populations. And so to some degree, they faced quite different uh, sets of structural constraints that I wouldn't say shape every political decision that they make whatsoever. History and institutions matter quite a bit, but they certainly pose constraints. And so it's these countries um, like the Egypts and Tunisias that don't have lots of cushion uh, in the form of resource rents, although, of course, Egypt has all kinds of strategic rents, foreign aid and so forth from the yeah, West, but also sure. from, you know, Gulf countries. Um, that you know, there that makes them quite vulnerable, uh, and and makes them have to try to, you know, produce jobs for their citizens and provide basic services. Um, so these are you know countries that are particularly vulnerable. Also, arguably, countries like Algeria and Iraq that have, you know, that really suffer when you have oil busts and of course wars <laughs> that yeah. are terrible for populations, as we've seen in Iraq and Syria, Yemen. Um, so, uh, so 
you know, there's there's somewhat different circumstances, but broadly speaking, this is a region that after independence uh, is characterized by very, very high levels of government spending as a percentage of GDP. And this helped to propel social mobility. In fact, um, this region, the Arab region and the Middle East more generally, had the highest rate of improvement in social indicators across all global regions, all developing regions in the 60s and part of the 70s. And this is probably due to high levels of public expenditures, investment in these social sectors. And then this just crashed by the 1980s and you have the familiar story of structural adjustment and so forth. Yeah. Um, so, so that's kind of the context that these countries are living in. And they're really in a tight spot that's only getting worse with um, conflict and rising inequality and, and the inability to construct dynamic private sectors, partly because of really fierce global competition, partly because, you know, most of the private sector development has been characterized by cronyism rather than truly competitive, you know, firms making it in some, you know, mythical marketplace. So <laughs> yeah. So what are the implications for, for people, broadly speaking, then across the region in these conditions from the 80s onwards? So, um, you know, from the 80s onwards, it seems that, uh, and particularly in some cases in the 90s onwards, that the prospects for social mobility have deteriorated and flattened out, if not declined. And this is reflected in public opinion data of perceptions of social mobility as well. In many contexts, people um, you know, that have increasingly more and more people have defined themselves as lower income rather than middle income uh, and in report that it is harder to meet household needs and so forth. So, you know, this is a tough situation across the board in many contexts. And uh, as is well known, I mean, report after report after report points out that uh, there's just a real failure to uh, create jobs, especially good jobs. Um, you know, other various economists like Zafiri Zanatos have pointed out that there's no lack of jobs in the Arab world. It's just that they're all informal sector jobs where people are way overqualified for them and so forth. Yeah, and that has that has quite serious political repercussions, of course. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, one could argue, you know, we've been debating what caused the Arab uprisings, and I'm not sure we'll ever resolve this. One could argue that these kinds of uh, sources of dissatisfaction are at the root of the uprisings. Now, obviously, social mobilization isn't purely produced by grievances. Otherwise, we would have had social mo mobilization nonstop for the last several decades. Yeah. There's much more proximate features that explain why a given individual or groups of people actually go out onto the street in a on a particular day. But I think there's no question that these mounting grievances and dissatisfaction uh, with the situation have been at the root of what's going on. Um, and, you know, it's sort of a moot point to just to argue about whether it's dignity versus economic concerns, because they're all quite intertwined. Um, there is some evidence, and I've been working on a paper related to this with some co-authors, um, that uh, this that the demand for democracy, you know, is certainly strong in the region, but that it fluctuates depending on the larger macroeconomic and macro political situation. So, so uh, in the lead up to the Arab uprisings. 
Um, there's evidence, and others have shown this, that people were very pro-democracy. And then after a couple of years of chaos, say, for example, in Egypt, people became less enamored by democracy and just craved stability, even yeah. to the point they were ready to take an authoritarian ruler. So, um, so these claims that we often hear in sort of, you know, uh, certain, I don't know, journalistic or popular outlets that, you know, there's less commitment to democracy in the Arab world or in the Muslim world are ridiculous because that commitment fluctuates depending on the, the sort of larger macro level circumstances. And that's true for the United States and other countries in the West as well. Yeah, of course. It, it's interesting you say that. I've just finished uh, some, some work on a book that's coming out later this year or early next year. And one of the themes that I was exploring is uh, sort of regime responses to the uprisings. And one of the, the responses, particularly in the Gulf, was to was to pose their their citizens a choice and say, look, you can have democracy, but if you if you choose democracy, then that's that's an open door to what happens in Syria. If you don't want things to to descend like Syria, then then you give up your democratic aspirations and you you plump for security and stability. Yes, that's an excellent point. And you know, these regimes have become masters at this. There's a nice article, I think, published in 2011 by Ellen Lust, in which she shows that the the so-called Islamist threat is another explanation for authoritarian durability in the region for a similar reason, as you articulate, that uh, authoritarian rulers can say, look, you know, après moi le déluge, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. going to be best um, if, you, if you really want this kind of opening, um, that's what you're going to get is instability, chaos and rule by actors that you don't like, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and uh, it's really interesting. I know you, you've touched on on this in some of the the articles that you've done, uh, particularly Middle East Development Journal, which is a fascinating piece. And I'll I'll share that for for some of our listeners so they can get a sense of of the the themes that you're talking about in more detail. But Melanie, I'd like to to go back to your book, if I may, Compassionate Communalism, and. I think this is it's a fascinating book. It's it's so very rich and nuanced and, and raises so many interesting and important issues that that relate to what we're doing in, in SAPAD, but also relate pretty nicely to what we've just been talking about about the sort of socioeconomic forces at play. But for for those people who've not read it yet, and I urge people to do so, can you just give a, a brief outline of what you're trying to do and, and the argument that you present, please? Sure. Yeah. In that book, which was published actually now about five years ago, um, I was looking at social service delivery by non-state actors and particularly by sectarian political parties and uh, movements in Lebanon. And the core analytical question was, under what condition do uh, sectarian identity, ostensibly identity-based actors, uh, cater to their own in-group members, that is, people from the same religious community, and within that, their most ardent activists and supporters, and under what conditions do they serve more broadly, either to a broader set of people from their same religious communities, so not only the hardcore activists, or also under some conditions to folks beyond their own religious community. Because we often think, and there's all kinds of social science theory to, ex to make us expect this, that uh, ethnic or religious groups would cater to their own, to their members of their own community. And what I observed was that 
under some conditions, they uh, actually break out of this and, and target people uh, from other communities. So to summarize the argument, I had two sort of core analytical claims. One was that uh, when they were trying to play what I called sort of state-centric politics, you know, when they were trying to play within the quote-unquote normal rules of the game, you know, contest elections and that sort of thing, then they had incentives to serve more broadly because they had to win uh, votes from people outside of their core base. And this is partly a function of the particular nature of the electoral institutions in Lebanon at that time. Um, and then uh, when they were playing more uh, extra state strategies, that is, they were trying to work outside of normal state channels by doing things like playing what I called militia politics, you know, fielding militias, trying to do things like protracted sit-ins and protests and so forth. Um, then, then they were uh, had an incentive to serve more narrowly uh, within their own communities and particularly hardcore activists. Um, so this is kind of a simplified version of one aspect of the argument. The other argument, the other component of the argument had to do with the degree to which they face competition from actors within their own religious communities. And so in Lebanon's power sharing system, you have a premium on becoming or presenting yourself as the premier representative of your own religious community. And uh, so when you are facing competition for this status, you have an incentive to serve people from your own com community much more than anyone else because you're trying to demonstrate your you know, in-group credentials, that you really are the true protector of the community. But when you've already reached that dominant status, then you have a little bit more leeway to uh, reach out more broadly because you've already shown that you have these uh, credentials. And so when I would, for example, do interviews with Christian political parties, and it's the Christian community that has uh, in more recent years faced the greatest competition for who's going to represent that community, uh, I would sometimes get political party uh, cadres telling me whether we like it or not, we have to show that we are the best protector of the Christians. We have to out-Christianize the other <laughs> yeah. Christian parties. Sure. So, so that was the kind of dynamic I was referring to. So what are the what are the structural conditions that you're sort of working within then when you're talking about this sort of this intersect competition what are the sort of the the broader political structures that that facilitate or constrain this Yeah to some degree it has to do with um uh, you know the way resources are allocated uh, because there is this uh, sectarian power sharing system that's really well articulated and institutionalized in the Lebanese context, um, as many, many people have written about. It's quite explicit. Um, and this actually extends to the allocation of resources. There's a nice piece in the International Journal of Middle East Studies by um, Nisreen Salti and Jad Shaban at the American University of Beirut, in which they actually pick apart the budget and show how it gets allocated along uh, sectarian lines. And, um, and so, you know, you get more access to resources if you become the premier representative of the sect. So I think it ultimately boils down to resources. Um, and, and 
I remember once in a conversation with Roger Owen, the late wonderful historian who was my colleague at Harvard, um, he referred to this, and I believe I quote this in the book, as the cannibalization of the state. So some people say, you know, characterize Lebanon as uh, having a very weak state or no state, uh, where is the state, that sort of thing. But it, to some degree or in some particular respects, that's a mischaracterization because there is a state, it has some resources, and all of these sectarian actors are trying to get a piece of the pie. Yeah. So um, so that's that's their real interest here, and that's one of the reasons why you have an interest to be the representative. And that that struggle for the piece of the pie leads to sort of competition within the within the different groups, and it leads to the mobilization of those militias within side those groups. Yes, um, uh, certainly that is the case. I mean, there's undoubtedly complex reasons why militias are mobilized, but militias certainly signal power and enable you to maintain power. So that's part of the story. Yeah, I wonder. Can you say just a little bit about how? How external actors are involved in in reinforcing these these groups, please. You touch on on obviously the role of Iran and 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 briefly the role of Saudi Arabia, but could you say a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, it's a little bit opaque. I would have loved to look at you know budget spreadsheets and accounting books, but you can <laughs> yeah. imagine that this was impossible to do. Um, there are estimates by various intelligence agencies, but it's not clear where they get their data from. Um, but we know, I think it's you know common sense and 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 also quite openly admitted by many of these actors that they get resources from external uh, actors, external governments, foreign governments, Iran and Saudi being chief among them for Hezbollah and previously for the future movement, respectively. Um, so, so they they play an important role in certainly in in propping up some of the welfare networks that I wrote about but also in sustaining these uh, groups and, of course, in sustaining their patronage activities, not to mention their other activities as well. Um, and, uh, and others have written about their important regional effects as well. Um, so, so they are certainly an important part of the story. And one can imagine that they play some role in, influ- in influencing the behavior of sectarian parties and leaders and movements within the country. My hunch is that they don't entirely dictate what domestic actors do. Sometimes people refer to Hezbollah as sort of the uh, puppet of Iran. I think that's misleading. Hezbollah is clearly a locally entrenched domestic actor that has its own set of interests. So I would imagine that there's much more of a dialogue there. Yeah. Uh, but but they um, but they certainly have some influence and they are an important source of resources, albeit not the only source of resources. Sure. Uh, Melanie, I'm going to ask you to speculate just briefly, if I may. Um, I, I wonder, to what extent do you think these themes and the ideas that you're exploring in the book apply to to other other examples of divided societies, such as um, Iraq, perhaps Bahrain, uh, and and possibly well Syria and Yemen, although I guess it's difficult to speculate about those in their present state. Yeah, I mean, I would expect that the sort of core stripped down analytical insights would travel, and I've had 
people that work on other regions of the world talk to me about how the ideas apply in certain parts of Latin America or Southeast Asia and so forth. Um, and uh, I, I try to make the connection to other cases briefly in my book by uh, illustrating some possible extensions to Iraq. Uh, I focused in particular at the time on the Sadrist movement yeah. between 05 and 07, which is quite a different movement now than it was then. It's evolved. Um, and all of these movements have evolved. I mean, the future movement that I wrote about in that book is not the future movement of today. Um I also tried to extend some of the insights uh, of of my from my arguments to the case of India, uh, to the behavior of the BJP Hindu Nationalist Party there, and actually I've been doing some uh, work on an, another project um, in India. So now I, I myself am doing field work in India as well. So it was helpful to have that background based yeah. on the book. Fascinating. Um, yeah. Melanie, we've taken so much of your time, but but I'm going to ask one final question, if I may, and and this pertains to the 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 third dimension of, of our project, and that is the the desectarianization of 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 political life. And I, I wonder, to what extent do you think this this sort of compassionate communalism that you're dealing with and questions of welfare help or or perhaps reinforce? Um, Sorry, help to help people to circumvent or perhaps reinforce the sort of the sectarian blocks within within Lebanese political life. Do you think there is scope to move beyond through this type of um, this type of distribution? I mean, I think you've just asked the million dollar question, and in fact, it's <laughs> preoccupying me to the point where I want to make this my next book project. Is right. how do you essentially bring down the sectarian tensions once you've ratcheted them up. Sure. Uh, I do not think it's easy for a variety of reasons, some of them macro and some of them micro. So the macro ones relate to precisely your question and some of the themes in the book. Uh, so once you have institutions established, um, it's really hard to deconstruct them and it's really hard to... Um, to uh, dismantle what they provide, in part because the actors that sustain them have very deep vested interests in sustaining them. They benefit from them, the sectarian parties in question, and in part because vulnerable people are dependent on them and they simply don't have the means or the time or the capacity to take a risk to oppose them, even if they don't like their reliance on sectarian patronage networks. So for those reasons, I think they actually contribute to uh, the reinforcement of sectarianism. The obvious implication is that, you know, at some point, these actors won't be able to sustain these networks anymore, which means that at least this channel of reproduction of sectarianism might become degraded. And so... Uh, I think as long as the state is unable to provide a kind of civic neutral set of welfare benefits, and I realize that's a very idealized thing <laughs> yeah. that exists nowhere in the world, um, you know, as long as that's not the case and an important portion of the population, the more vulnerable portion, which is growing, by the way, yeah. is dependent on these patronage networks, then it's going to be very hard to dismantle them. Uh, and, you know, it's because it's hard to construct alternative uh, systems. They exist on paper, but again, they're being cannibalized by these actors. 
some of whom have their own welfare networks, some of whom work through existing public programs and facilities and claim credit for them. So it's going to be very hard to dismantle them. I think on net, they probably contribute to reinforcing them. We've seen this in the health sector, certainly in education. You know, this is where you get to the core of socialization. And one of the things I found from visiting schools across Lebanon, and this is true for many, many other post-conflict settings, uh, is that there is not a uniform history being taught in Lebanese schools, sure, uh, at least yeah. when it comes to Lebanese uh, recent history, modern history. So that's a problem as well, because children and young adults are getting socialized into different versions of the national historiography. Of course. So that too is a hindrance. Yeah. Lots to think about, lots to digest, but it's been absolutely fantastic talking with you, Melanie. So thank you so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot and and I've got a lot to think about moving forward. Thank you so much for inviting me and congratulations on this excellent and exciting project that you have going. Thanks, Melanie. It's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Until next time.